uh, God's Word, Revelation chapter 2, written a long time ago, written with you in mind. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not lay on, I do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak. We desperately need to hear from heaven, and we know that we are such weak creatures that we do not listen well. So often our hearts are hard and our minds are darkened, and so we ask that your spirit would work to bring life and light through your word, which is life and light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What's the number one complaint against the church? I mean, not this church. The capital C church. Church is kind of all across the board. The church. And I mean, we really could have a a really robust conversation about that right now, couldn't we? As to all the different things that people don't like about the church, the different ways in which it's broken, the different things that show up in the church that we don't like, but really at the end of the day, in many ways, it kind of boils down to one thing. Most of those complaints, I guess, fall in the category of hypocrisy. We, we struggle with that gap between what the Bible says we are to be and what we actually are currently. And it is a gap. I love how First John deals with that and says, if anyone says you don't sin, they're a liar. You know, anyone that refuses to acknowledge the gap 
between what we're told to be and what we are, they're a liar. No one's perfect this side of the grave. And you could say, I guess, that with the midst of, in the midst of that hypocrisy, that we're just going to throw up our hands and just say, well, you know what? Tough luck. This is how it is this side of the grave. I'm just going to kind of sit in my mess and wallow in it, and this is who I'm going to be. I am who I am. You can't change that. <clears throat> or I guess you could take the other route and get angry at the church and just dwell and fixate on that, the gap between what we are and what we're supposed to be. Or we could take the other route, which is to marvel at how generous the Lord is, <laughs> how patient he is with us, how slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love he is, and how patient he is to deal with people like us, how kind he is to fill a church with people like us. I mean, if we're going by the world standards, most of us would not be the first choice on any team. doesn't matter which team we're picking for. We're not on it. And yet here in these letters, as we've been working through them, we've been seeing the Lord Jesus working with the church, helping them understand their hypocrisy, and then changing them through it. And I love how as he's dealing with these various churches we've been working with, he, he's a master surgeon. And most of the time when we come in to try to confront evil or confront uh, sin, people that we know or we love, we tend to maybe come in a little bit like um, the delicacy of a, like a charging rhino. We just kind of bull in a china shop and everything kind of blows up. Instead, we've watched the Lord Jesus as he's dealt with the church in Ephesus, as he's dealt with the church in Smyrna, as he's dealt with the church in Pergamum, with the surgeon's scalpel cutting away at the hearts of his people, dealing with their failings in the most delicate and precise fashion. And we get to Thyatira. Thyatira is, at this point, the long section And it's one of the most negative that we've hit yet, and it's hard. This city doesn't exist as we know it anymore. The church doesn't exist as we know it anymore. We do know a little bit about the community. It was extremely wealthy and primarily run uh, by guilds. It was primarily run by your merchant class. They had all kinds of things that showed up when money showed up, and they worshipped all kinds of gods. It was a pluralistic, tolerant, wealthy area. And the Lord Jesus comes to address the church. In verse 19, again, it has all these letters are written. It starts with things that we get excited about, things that we'd love to have written on our tombstone, things that we find encouraging. Jesus says to them, I know your works. And again, remembering this whole chapter, this section as he writes to these churches, it's framed within the confines of Jesus knows what he's talking about. He's already described himself as the one who walks between the lampstands, the one who who walks in the church. This isn't like me trying to lecture you on the intricacies of the grammar of Mandarin. 
I have no knowledge of how that language works. For me to lecture you on the intricacies of how the subjunctive works in Chinese, I have no clue. I don't even know what that is. I don't know if they have it. I don't know. Jesus, on the other hand, is the one who lives in the church. He walks with the church. He's constantly in and around the church. So when he goes to speak, it's not out of ignorance. It's not out of not having seen. He speaks knowing what he's talking about. And in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. Oh, no, he knows them. And that your latter works have exceeded the first. What a compliment. What a compliment coming from Jesus for him to say that as he deals with this church, he knows that they're making progress. He knows that they're changing. He knows that though they used to be one way, they're now another. That's what we heard from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Such were some of you. You've been changed. You've been transformed and you're continuing to do so as you move through life. But as with all of us, they're not done yet. They're not done yet. In fact, there's one major thing that he jumps in on here at the church of Thyatira. They have that woman. I love how that's phrased. That woman, Jezebel. Now, her name's not actually Jezebel, most likely. What uh, we think's probably happening here is uh, there is a woman in the church who is a problem. It's not a problem that she's a woman in the church. That's fine. Women are supposed to be in the church. It's not even a problem that she is actively instructing in the church. There's proper venues and formats for that. The problem is with what she's instructing, which is why Jesus, in a great act of kindness, rather than calling her name out, gives us a character from the Old Testament to wrap our minds around so that the comparison calls it to mind. Oh, okay, I know what she's like. Rather than saying, you tolerate that woman, Alice, whatever name, pick a name that no one in this room has. <laughs> Rather than tolerate that woman, he instead calls forth the name of Jezebel. Jezebel being an extremely significant figure in Old Testament history, largely because of her relationship with the king, which we read. The king being the petulant child there in 1 Kings that we read. <clears throat> Jezebel being the power behind the throne. Jezebel being the problem solver. Jezebel being the one who gets stuff done. All things that we as Americans like. It's done at all costs. Only problem being is that she does not have regard for God's law. You remember the story, Ahab ends up being one of the great wicked kings in Israel's history. I mean, his wickedness is spectacular. 
And so much of it is connected to his wife, Jezebel, who leads him into it, who prods him into it, who encourages him into it, who pulls him into it. So now in Thyatira, we have the name of the enemy in their midst. This would have been like in the 50s in America or something to have, you know, a warning given to that that false teacher in your midst, Stalin or Lenin or Hitler or, you know, one of those who are going, why are you using that name? Because I want you to think about all of the baggage that it comes that brings with it. Now we find out about this Jezebel. She's doing a number of things <clears throat> inside the church of Thyatira that are problematic. And there, there's a whole bunch of it happening very rapidly. And Jesus doesn't spend a great deal of time on any of them, but rather kind of introduces us at broad level to the issues You tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is the problem of the church is that they have not gotten rid of her. See, in the early church, false teachers were everywhere. I mean, to the point where if you actually think about it, you have the four Gospels. You have the book of Acts, which is a history book. You have Romans, which is Paul's resume to the church in Rome before he goes. And every book after that is dealing with false teachers. Literally every single book after that is dealing with false teachers as the church begins to grow. People coming in and beginning to teach wrong things. So Paul and John and Jude and Peter write letters to try to combat the false teaching. Here, Jezebel has done the same thing. In fact, actually, even in verse 20, highlighting that she who calls herself a prophetess. Well, I don't know. What's the big deal with that? Who cares? I mean, you could call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, right? If I want to call myself a purple monkey, I can do that. No, no, there's actually significance to what she's doing. Because by taking up the name of prophetess, it doesn't just mean that that's her new title, Prophetess Jezebel but that it carries with it the idea of authority. That it it carries with it the idea of thus saith the Lord. You have to listen to me. You have to listen to what I have to say. And it's very clear in the early church, they understood that the foundation of the church was on the teachings of the apostles and the teachings of the prophets. That's how the idea of Christianity was verbalized. It was founded on the teaching of the prophets and the teaching of the apostles. And now for her to claim this title, she's saying, look, I am in my teaching the foundation of Christianity. You have to listen to me. I'm able to introduce new content. I'm able to introduce new truth. You have to listen to me. This would be the type of title that a person could claim if they wanted to author new scripture, to make new truth. Jesus has no place for that. He is the truth, 
He is the life. He has no space for a woman who is proclaiming herself. It could be man too. It has nothing to do with gender. Uh, who's proclaiming herself to be prophet. To be the mouthpiece of God. To be the one who is uh, producing new scripture. Again, put that in contrast with what this church is doing. If you're able to stay for Sunday school the next hour, what are we going to be teaching you? New revelation? New truth. I'm teaching you how to read your Bible. How to go back to the old paths, not to the new ones. We don't actually know the full content of what she was teaching them. We know at least three pieces of it. First, we know if you skip way down a little bit later in the paragraph, uh, verse 24, that part of what she was teaching them, some were calling the deep things of Satan. Uh, I suspect what that meant more was she was teaching something that she would say, look, I'm going to explain to you the way the world works. I'm going to explain to you the way that God works, and I'm going to explain to you the way that the devil works, and I'm going to explain to you everything that is. I'm going to introduce you into all truth. That was language that was very common uh, in the time, very common amongst the Greeks and the Romans. It would eventually get rebranded, repackaged into a thing called Gnosticism, which said that you could in your spirit have direct access to the realm of the divine. If you simply opened yourself to the spirits, it would then be repackaged in what we call New Age thinking today. You may not know this. Most of your New Age stuff today was founded off of Greek thought from anywhere from 300 B.C. to about 450 A.D. Opening yourself to the spirit world so that you would be able to discern what is good and right and true and evil and broken and bad. Which is interesting because that's not actually ultimately the, the, the content of the scriptures. We have that kind of idea introduced in really only one other place in scripture. And that's ultimately what the devil is hinting at when he tempts Eve. Look, you want to know, you want to understand, you want to apprehend how the world works in its entirety. Good and evil, righteousness and untruth. Eat the fruit. You can become like God. And much like with Eve, it produced disobedience. That's what Jezebel's teaching is doing. It's producing false content. And then in verse 20, it's producing false practice. Sexual immorality doesn't define what the specific acts are. Obviously not good. And food offered to idols. That would have been a big deal because that food offered to idols was an explicit, intentional act of compromise. To say that I love Jesus, but I don't love him alone. I love Jesus, but I love Apollos too. I love Jesus, but I love... Pick any of the Roman pantheon. I love him too.
in preparing for this week, thinking through uh, this sermon, thinking again, how, how do we apply this today? <clears throat> how do we think about how this fits for the American church? And boy, it doesn't take a, a lot of thought to think about a church that does not go back to the Bible, but instead of going back to the Bible, finds new paths that lead us into immorality and compromise. Right? That's, that's not a hard step to take. Go walk through any Christian bookstore. Go walk through Barnes & Noble through the Christian section of the bookstore. Watch my Twitter feed of all the celebrity pastors I follow or other things. And it, it, again, it's amazing for a, a country that produces so much stuff that we label Christian, how very little we know about the Bible. I remember this is probably a, a decade ago now, uh, the seminary president for our denominational seminary. So this is in-house. I'm not even talking about those Christians. I'm talking about these Christians. They asked him on the floor of General Assembly what he thought about his students. What, what are the, the quality of PCA seminary students? This is 10, 11 years ago, and he stood on the floor and he said, look, they're marvelous. I love them. They love me. They love Jesus. They have beautiful understanding of theology. They have no idea what the Bible says. And the reason why they have no idea what the Bible says is because their pastors aren't teaching them. So on the floor of General Assembly, get him. Wow. He's not the seminary president anymore. It's a shame, because we need to hear stuff like that more often, don't we? Why is it that our committed men who are going to be pastors who we would hope are holy and hope are committed to the Lord and hope and are obedient and hope are the next generation of faithful gospel teachers. They have no idea what the Bible says. And we're talking about a denomination that loves reading and loves teaching and loves intellect and loves the scriptures more than a lot. And we don't know our Bibles. And I'd love to say that, well, we don't know our Bibles, but we don't have any issue with false teaching coming in. I would love to say that that's the truth, but it's obviously not. I mean, how many statements has our denomination had to make about false teaching in the last decade alone? Right, at least two inside the PCA. We're working on a third right now. Guys, inside our own denomination, what, like the second or third most conservative denomination in the entire country. And again, if we struggle with this, and there's a natural temptation for us to say, look, well, it's not that big of a deal. Pastor Michael, you're just, you're too grumpy, which is probably true just in general anyways. (laughs) You get, you get too hung up on, on false teaching. You're, you're, you're a PhD guy. This is what you like to do. You study this sort of stuff for fun. It, the rest of you're just too uptight. Again, probably true. But not on this. 
Not on this because of how we see Jesus interact with this portion of the church in Thyatira. And you remember, uh, we've talked about this from all the other letters. He introduces himself in such a way that frames out the entire conversation to give them a clue as to how he's going to interact with them. And in his, his introduction in verse 18 is, the words of the Son of God, we like this, this is positive, who has eyes like flames of fire. Mm-hmm, that's less positive. And feet are like burnished bronze. That's confusing. Now, what what this would have been in this era, this image would have been certainly calling back to Daniel, but would have been the image of a gigantic figure of strength. I mean, burnished bronze feet don't exactly, you know, convey the idea of something being fragile or delicate. I mean, like the stiletto heels, that, those are very fragile. That carries the idea of like, I don't know how you walk and your ankles don't explode. Burnished bronze boots, the idea of strength, of, of crushing victory. That's how he introduces himself as the mighty king. But then even how he begins to interact with Jezebel. Verse 22, what's going to happen to her? What's going to happen to this sort of false teacher? Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those commit adultery with her. Uh, Not really going to go into all the details of what that one is, but I suspect what he's meaning is he's giving her enough rope to hang herself. Right? For the extremely sexually immoral woman, her own activities have come back to haunt her and she's perishing from it. He will have victory over her. He will have victory over this teaching. He will have victory over this in the church. And he will destroy it. He's going to destroy her on the sickbed. He's also going to destroy those who hold to this sort of teaching unless they repent. And verse 23, I will strike her children dead. He will be victorious. And I I love how, again, the scriptures know us so well because God knows us so well, but reality of the matter is most of us, when we hear tough statements like this where it's dealing with God's judgment or things like that, we love the loophole. And I love the loophole. Because usually I think that I can be smarter or better than most of you, so I can figure out I can get through the loophole where you might not be able to. And I love what Jesus says there. Look, I'm going to strike her children dead. And then for all of you who might be clinging to a loophole thinking, I can weasel my way out of this. And the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. There's no loophole. There's no way to get around this tremendous victory that Jesus has because he's not simply judging by the outsides, he's judging by the insides. He knows those who have compromised. He knows those who are pursuing immorality even on the inside. There is no loophole. And I think for many of us, this is the much scarier truth. 
Because, I mean, we don't like to admit that we're hypocrites. We don't like to admit that what we say and what we do don't always line up. We don't like to have to deal with that truth. But for many of us, we've had enough years of practicing or we're coming from a culture that's well enough established or such that we at least know how to behave in a way that's culturally you know, appropriate. But what Jesus here says is that he's not interacting with his people simply on what's on the outside. Those tiny hypocrisies that are acceptable in the community around He's interacting with the heart. He knows the mind. He knows the voice of your inner monologue. He knows the daydreams and the thoughts. He knows the secret thoughts that no one else does. And that is what he deals with. Again, I think for the American church particularly, this is a reality that needs to be discussed a little bit more. That in so many times we've reduced Christianity to conservative politics. I watched that happen this week. One of the great voices in evangelicalism come out and say something to the effect of like if you don't if you don't support a specific political party you border on being demonic so. you might have a small view of what demonic means and you might have a smaller view of what Jesus is who he is what kind of king he is if you think a political party can fix it No, here you have King Jesus saying, I see the thoughts and the minds and the hearts of all his creatures, all his people, and he is coming to judge. I think something we probably need to think about a little bit more in the American church to add a sense of reverence, to add a sense of that holy fear. You don't mouth off to this God. And there's a way to talk about this and to talk about it incorrectly where it's only used as as a motivation for fear, only used as that kind of invisible spiritual prod to try to terrify people into obeying. I remember as a child going to the, you know, talking about those things were designed to scare the hell out of you, literally. So you go to heaven because you're so scared. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, even in the midst of framing himself as being the holy terror that he is, the judge who will judge the entire world, and does so not on how you compare to each other, but judges you on how he sees your heart. I love how he showcases the other aspect of his character in verse 21. He gave her time to repent. He gave her time to repent because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love because he is the God of grace. I love how it says it didn't give her time to be perfect because she would never have hit that. 
It didn't say that he gave her time to pull herself by her bootstraps and to be better than her neighbors because she never would have done that. It didn't say to give her time to fix herself culturally so that she matched the culture around her so that she wasn't quite so offensive to everybody else because she already was that. He gave her a chance to repent. He gave her a chance to say that she was sorry and to turn to Christ. And interestingly, verse 22, the latter half of it, explains so carefully that was all she needed to do. Turn from herself. Turn from her own perceived power, her own perceived truth, her own perceived sense of self-aggrandizement. Turn from her own perceived ethics and values and merits and economy. And to turn to Christ. To turn from who she is and what she wanted to be and to turn to King Jesus. And the reality of the matter is, and again, I love how so Scripture knows us so well. The loophole that immediately our heart starts to form, I know it's the one my own heart tries to form, is like, well, that sounds terrible. To give up all of who I am to follow Jesus? That sounds terrible. I don't think I want that. Thank you. It only sounds terrible if Jesus is a terrible king. If he's a tyrant. If he's a dictator. And it's interesting, he explains exactly who he is in verse 24. To the rest of you, to those that have repented, to those that are not continuing to follow after Jezebel, to those who have bowed the knee... I don't lay any other burden. I love that. I'm not laying any other burden. He's so gracious. He's so kind, and in fact, not only does he not lay additional regulations or rules on them, he says, look, just hold fast to what you've already believed, to what you already to know to be true, and when I show up, verse 26, I will conquer and I will give that to you. This mighty, powerful Jesus... The one who will destroy all of his enemies shares his victory. Shares his glory. Shares his delight. Look at what happens. Verse 26. The one who conquers, who keeps my works into the end to him, I will give the authority over all nations. The king is saying, look, I will make you to be kings of your own right. Even the creation itself will be under your governance in some fashion. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That, that uh, means that it, it's with um, 
great success that he rules. Uh, it's not like there are those that are fighting against him and you know, there's not some sort of guerrilla war happening behind the scenes that he can't have victory over. No, Jesus has complete and total victory in the end and he will give it to his people and it will be as effective as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. How much is left over after pot shattered? Well, it's nothing. The enemy's destroyed in its entirety. And you know how he has proof that this is going to happen? Well, the Father gave him authority, and he will give that same to us. He will have victory. And I, I do worry, again, as we think about this, how much we like to talk about the last point that Jesus shares his victory with the church but we miss the first two points that I have to be willing to acknowledge the ways in which I am setting myself up against him and I have to bow the knee this is again my fear for the world in which we live It's my fear for the the culture in which we live that we have mistaken Christianity for the wrong thing. We've mistaken it solely for a set of ethics. Nine commandments, because we don't like one. That if we do those nine commandments, because we don't like one, then we'll be okay. And the reality is that's never what it's been. It's intriguing. I love how even in these letters to the church, how many of those nine commandments and the one we don't like have been mentioned yet? None. Because it's about Christ. He's in every church. He's in every letter. He is the center point of it all to bow the knee to King Jesus. I have to stop talking because it's time and because my voice will shred. But a closing thought is this. It's the beauty of why we don't have to be afraid of the charge of hypocrisy. Because it's true. (laughs) You don't have to be afraid of allegations when they're accurate. But the beautiful thing is, is hypocrisy is not what keeps us out of heaven. Not knowing Christ is. And the great privilege, the, the, the opportunity we have to bow the knee and to serve our Savior. Father, thank you for sustaining my voice. Yet again, you've done it, and we praise you. We ask that you do it for the next two and a half hours as well. Lord, we do ask that you would help us in our repentance. We don't like to do it. We like to be our own gods, and we do such a poor job of it. Forgive us for our sins. Lord, heal our hearts. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.